With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And all of that. But there was something about being in a musical that just, oh my gosh, this is great. So um, when I went to college, I was a drama major. And so I wasn't one of those kids who from, you know, the age of five said, I'm going to be in show business. That wasn't like it for me. And maybe it's because it was the family business. Wow. And then it's, it's that thing. And you figure out what you love to do. So this is what you love to do, right? And that's why you said I'm going to do Yeah. Very lucky to be able to do what you love to do. As you know, you're sitting here chatting with people that, that you've always wanted to meet. And Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show, Media Giant Effect, with celebrity interviews live from the grotto with Greg Hanna. Greg, how are you? What's going on, man? And, you know, uh, my guest today, our guest today is exciting, right? Because we grew up watching her. <laughs> you know, I was so thrilled when you sent me that. Very excited to do this interview. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's the, the way this industry, it's so amazing. And a number of 9,000 plus interviews, stories and different things, but I'm excited to welcome the program. Eileen Graff. We all know her from Mr. Belvedere's days and also on Greece and musician Grammy nominated. I never knew all those things. Eileen, thanks for stopping by. Cause we just remember you. It's your one role in Mr. Belvedere, but a lot of people sometimes don't know that story, right? Of everything else that you did. Well, you, you know, you find that when you scratch the surface of a lot of people that are on TV, that we get to know people for one special role. And then when you look a little deeper, you realize, well, they had many years of experience. They were on the stage where they learned their craft. And uh, you go to one audition and your life changes and suddenly everything else you ever did, nobody's ever heard of. So it's fun to do shows like this where we can talk about what it takes to get where you are and um and to meet people like you who enjoyed the show when you were kids exactly so greg i want i know you i know you have tons of questions for eileen so go ahead <laughs> you, you know i do well fantastic it's such an honor to meet you thanks for being on um so how did you get started like when did you decide that you wanted to like get into this and showbiz and all that stuff and how did it happen <laughs> Well, I grew up in show business. My dad was a singer. He had a successful vocal group in the 50s and the 60s. And he sang on lots of jingles and records and stuff like that. So um, I grew up in the business, never really as a kid thinking I would go into it. I was suited for it. I could sing. I sang in tune. I I had a certain skill set that you get, you know, by osmosis when you're in, <laughs> when your family is in a business. Um, but I didn't really uh, entertain the thought of going into it professionally until the very end of high school, when I did my first musical in high school, which was Once Upon a Mattress, and I just loved it. I mean, I always loved singing. I was always in the glee club and the folk singing club and all of that. But there was something about being in a musical that just oh my gosh, this is great. So um, when I went to college, I was a drama major. And so I wasn't one of those kids who from, you know, the age of five said, I'm going to be in show business. That wasn't like it for me. And maybe it's because it was the family business. Wow. And then it's, it's that thing. And you figure out what you love to do. So this is mm -hmm. what you love to do, right? And that's why you said, I'm going to do it. Yeah, very lucky to be able to do what you love to do. As you know, you're sitting here chatting with people that, that you've always wanted to meet. And uh, what a what a joyous thing it is to have in your yeah, life. Pay, I, and, I get, and I get paid for it. So, you know, go figure. The, the, the <laughs> thing the thing that, that I'm living the dream. Exactly. When I was a professional wrestler, I had the same thing. I, I lived the dream. When you get to do something in entertainment and you get paid for something you enjoy, it's it's what a feeling. Yeah, it's it's the greatest. I, I have I cannot contradict you on that at all. 
Well, that's amazing. I'm just going to just say real quick, you, you know, I'm by osmosis, you know, my, my dad was an electrical engineer. He built one of the very first microcomputers, like back in the early, early 70s. And I used to hang out with him when he did that. And, you know, I'm a top cybersecurity and computer expert. And that's just kind of came in as well. It, and I love what I do. And it's like playing. So I can't believe I get paid to play, you know? Yeah. Hanging out in the grotto. What you do has changed all of our lives. Uh, we would never be sitting here like this without the work that your dad did and the work that you continue to do. And I think it's important that we all keep what we do um, in proportion and say entertainment is super duper important. I think that entertainment became incredibly important to our country during the pandemic when we were all sitting on our couches 20 hours a day watching TV. Um, but what your family did literally changed our everyday life so that we can communicate like this, so that we have the world in the in the palm of our hand. And uh, thank you to your dad for, for doing that for us. Well, gee, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. So what, what big project are you working on right now? Oh, right now I am preparing for my holiday show in New York at 54 Below. That's going to be on December 28th at 9.30 p.m. We were supposed to do it last year and uh, we got, we were at the club. We did our band rehearsal. We did our sound check. I was ready to go put my eyelashes on and they said, um, your show is canceled tonight because we've got people who work here who have COVID. Oh. So we all went home so dejected and so very sad. And um, so we booked the show again for this year and I have great faith and hope. And I know we're, we're gonna be able to do the show this year. So it's gonna have an extra special meaning for, for all of us. So it's gonna be me, my husband Ben Lanzaroni is our musical director. I've got wonderful special guests, Lori Tan Chin, who you may not know her name, but you certainly know her from Orange is the New Black and she plays grandma on Nora is Aquafina from Queens and John Miller, who was with me on Broadway in I Love My Wife and, our, and my husband and my daughter, Nika Graf Lanzaroni, who's also a fabulous performer. She's gonna be one of my guests. So that's yeah. what I'm on in my brain. <laughs> Uh, getting that organized uh, for December 28th. In New I can't York. believe you're thinking about this year is almost over and then that, it's another year, you know, it just flies by and I can't what believe happened? today's November 1st. <laughs> it's like, whoa, I remember, well, wasn't it December of last year? You know, it's just, everything is so fast. Now talking about Broadway and being part of Broadway, what does that experience bring to you compared to Mr. Belvedere? Because again, Broadway, you have to perform so many shows they're a very loyal audience that comes from all over the world to see you and perform a role like you performed in Greece. Kind of explain, was that more of a dream that came true than Mr. Belvedere? At different points in your life, I think you might agree you have different dreams. And to be able to be in a Broadway show is for, I would say, if not most, almost most uh, performers is something that you always want to have happen. There's just, it, it kind of doesn't matter how famous you are as a movie star, how much money you have or whatever. There's something about being in a Broadway show that kind of completes you in a way and gives you a stamp of legitimacy. Uh, I don't know, that might be stating it way too big. <laughs> but um, as, uh, as I was in my twenties when I did Broadway shows and it just felt to me like the next step of, of what I did. I trained for it. I was ready for it. I wanted to do it. And there I was on Broadway. I did three Broadway shows and it's fantastic. It's exhausting. <laughs> it's eight shows a week and you've got to give 100% eight shows a week because like you said, you got people coming from all over the world to come and see your show. And they don't know that you're having an allergy attack or that your foot hurts or that you just didn't get another job and you're sad or you broke up with your boyfriend. Your job is to give them 100%. So that's that's a lot. And it's it's great. It, it, the Broadway community is like no other, like no other. And then being on TV is is really different. First of all, the workload is not the same. So 
you move at a, I mean, TV works at a very fast pace, but it's a slower pace than Broadway. And you reach millions and millions and millions and millions of people. So you have a responsibility to those millions of people also to do your best. And uh, both are very gratifying ways of working, I felt. Yeah. Well, cool. Who, who's your favorite actor or actress that you worked with? That I worked with? Huh. Oh, my gosh. How can you even ask that question? <laughs> Going to have hundreds of people furious with me if I don't mention that, right? <laughs> it's just between us. We won't tell anyone. <laughs> I, I, I loved and adored my TV family. Um, when you're on a long-running show, like we were so lucky to have on Mr. Belvedere, I mean, Bob Euchre never felt like my husband, but he felt like, but our relationship was so very special. And I adored working with him. He was so funny, so fast, so warm and loving. And he and Christopher Hewitt created such a, a, a comfortable set that where we could be ourselves and, and, and do what we, what we intended to do, which was make people laugh and make them think just a little bit. And my Broadway Grease family uh, is still close. So I loved working with, I mean, I worked with 11 Danny Zuko's on Broadway. You know, <laughs> there was one John Travolta in the movie, but I worked with John when he was a kid and he didn't even play Danny Zuko on Broadway in the show. He, he was wow. in a different role. So um, I'm not going to say any specific people. I'm going to say I have been very lucky to work with some great folks. <laughs> and it's interesting you bring up the TV and then also the other, uh, that John Travolta fact is amazing to think about, right? That, you yeah. know, he became synonymous for Greece in the movies, and yet you performed with him before that. I mean, yeah. did you know there was something special for John when you worked with him? That he was, you know, because even think about, you know, it's kind of a story, right? A story behind the story of, you know, another movie he was in where he's looking to learn to perform. So what did you see out of him? He came, um, he was not in the Broadway company. He was in the national tour playing duty, which I think in the movie isn't really even a role. They sort of mushed things around a little bit for the movie and created different characters. Um, he was a, he was just, he was lighter than air. He was sweetness embodiment. I mean, if there was sweetness, it was John. He was uh those big blue eyes and just so nice and very talented very very talented he would come into our company if our the guy who was playing our duty was on vacation or that we needed him to come in and fill in uh so it, when he got his first his tv success on cotter it was like well look at that john <laughs> we had no idea he was going to become a superstar you don't know you were everybody's talented and and to find the person who has that chemistry with the camera you may not you may not know which one of us it was going to happen for but man it happened for him and we, it's, and he's still so sweet and just couldn't be happier for him we were all just rooting for him and thrilled for him yeah, you all. We all forget about Welcome Back, Carter, and how yeah. that. I mean, I love that show. Oh my goodness, I'm there sure. There wouldn't have been there wouldn't have been John playing Zuko in the movie if he hadn't done Cotter, because he really proved he proved he was magic on screen during Cotter and became the one of the, one of the breakout stars of Cotter. So it gave him um, substance, and and uh, he was he. It showed that he was qualified. You know, he was, the camera loves him. And that's what happens in Cotter. Oh, Vinnie Barbarino. I love that. That right, was funny. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Well, Eileen, I have, a, I have a question that we kind of started asking this like last four interviews. It, it's something that Neil got me into. And so here goes. Do you do any impressions of anyone? And if so, what's your favorite? And would you do a little bit? I I I failed this question. I I you can just put a big fat F next to me with this question because impressions are something I have never done. Um, really, my my, my family wow. 
no, it just doesn't come up. My family says I do Carol Channing, and I say I would never do this in front of anybody except you guys. And um, it, there are some people that just are so good at it. They have a great ear, and their faces are elastic, and they can do that stuff. But um, I think we have to move on to another question. I failed you. I'm sorry. Oh, you can fail. That's, okay. that's that's we like that, and that's a great question. Greg's asking. I guess it is a, Greg, Greg, a Greg wants question. to do impressions. Then I guess he wants to be impressionist. Then you know we've had <laughs> some of the greatest impressionists on the show lately. So he's like, "Well, can everyone do it?" Yeah, I yeah. guarantee she can. If we were going to do improv right now, like you know, whose line is it anyways? You would be able to do it. Trust me, you would yeah. be able to say, play a character right now. And I've interviewed one of them from Who's Line, and it was hilarious. And we did a a deal where I I was a professional wrestler, and he was a wrestler, and we went back and forth. <laughs> I, I never acted except in wrestling, so I have right. the acting ability. <laughs> But not to the level, you know, when you think about The Rock and you think about different people, how they became actors. And I think that Rock finally broke through because Hogan never, Hogan could never, ever be the right actor. I don't think anything he acted in, we just knew him as Hulk Hogan. The Rock right. was able to change it and he was smart. And then now you're seeing with Xena. So it's very, with John Xena, same thing. All right. So let's talk about the family again. You know, when you talk about Mr. Belvedere, how much do you still get recognized? And how many fans still are there of Mr. Belvier all over the world today? I mean, it's that's the thing about these certain shows. Yeah, you know, I still do get recognized. And certainly not like when the show was in its heyday, when I was recognized every day, wherever I went. But every once in a while, it's so cute. You know, you'd be out at a restaurant or in a line at the airport or whatever, and you see people like sneaking that look at you. And then they look away. And then they look at you and they look away. And I always go, hi and they go, oh, i loved you so much you ran in you know? <laughs> it's adorable but um i was in the grocery store one day this is one of my favorite recognizing me stories i was in the grocery store one day in the frozen food department and there's this guy who worked i never saw him before but he worked at the store he was wearing his ralph's uniform and his name tag this guy was tatted from his neck to his toes he had everything pierced in his face that you can imagine <laughs> he had black greasy spiky hair he was like a scary looking dude right if you saw him except now we know that that's just a look and it's a costume and he saw me and he puts out his arms and he says oh my god it's mrs belvedere and he gave me a hug this big tall scary dude and i said you are the most adorable guy i've ever seen he said I just got so shiny around you, but I just had to give you a hug and let you know <laughs> he turned into a five-year-old again. It was the cutest thing I ever saw. So it's those kinds of uh, moments when you get recognized and they open up to you a little bit and tell you. I, I've heard stories about how latchkey kids you know we were on for a long time 3 30 in the afternoon all across the country and a lot of kids would come home from school and nobody would be there for them uh which is you know it's a fact of life when you need people need to work and make money how many times people have just grabbed my hands and say you helped raise me i knew you were gonna be there every day when i came home from school and it meant so much to me so those kinds of moments are so wonderful and gratifying and it and it, 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 you know, it takes you aback and say, my gosh, we really had an influence on people. That's significant. Yeah. That's significant. What, what was the last year that uh, Mr. Belvedere was produced? Oh, gosh. I, um, I hate to even say it outside. 1990. Long 90. time ago. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah. that's what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. We ushered in the new decade. Yeah. No, seriously. <laughs> it was pretty terrific. Um, you know, Neil? All right, I'm going to go just jump. Any other projects that are going on? You brought up the one for the 28th of December. Anything else you have going Right, let's see. Well, you know, I teach. I teach vocal performance. I teach a workshop. Um, my singing is very, very important to me. And uh, my husband and I have been so fortunate in this business. Uh, we have so much experience. He is a, a brilliant composer, and he's done very, very well in his life, and musical director, piano player, and one day we looked at each other and said, I think we can share a little bit about what we know. And I think we should. I think it's the right thing to do. So we've been teaching this vocal performance workshop for 
oh, about 10 years now. And it's, uh, it's just a great thing. People come, come to us who just love to sing and they just want to get better. And so we work very closely with them in our class situation and their showcase is coming up in a couple of, in the beginning of December. So we're busily working, getting that together, getting everybody all ready for their, for their big moment. And um, what else? Well, this is far in the future, but uh, 54 Below again in New York invited our daughter, Nika and me and Ben to do their Mother's Day show in uh, in new york so i was so touched and honored that they that they thought of us so as soon as the christmas show is over we're going to start working on that on that mother's day show so there's a lot a lot a lot going on and promoting the events how much work is that involved to get the next event like the 28th <laughs> of december and then you're talking about mother's day what's involved involved in, in promotion for something like that well, you know, you're you're a get up and go do it guy. I can tell you you probably have never waited for a phone to ring in your life that you're you're out there and and I read a little bit about you and that's part of your philosophy is you got to go out and you got to get what you want. And you have to be organized and take steps. And that's what my business has turned into, you know, back in the day, we used to have people who did things for us, like <laughs> did all the organizing for a show or for a concert, and they did all the mailings and they did all the, no, not anymore. Um, performers are now small businesses. So I've had to learn an awful lot how to run a small business. So all of the promotion, I mean, Harlan Bowl, uh, I think you know Harlan, he's a amazing he's publicist. He works very hard for me. And he, and he has taught me so much about what to do to get people in the seats. So I would say it's maybe 40% preparing for the show with the material and the songs and the music and 60% of the business of promoting, getting the word out. Um, it's not necessarily my favorite thing to do, but I don't dislike it. Um, yeah. It challenges a different part of my brain to think of, well, how am I gonna, how am I gonna let people know? How am I gonna let them know that this, the holiday show is a great show. It's a lot of fun that they would, you know, come in, come into the city and, and sit there and be entertained. Um, but you're absolutely right, Neil. I mean, so much of it is what, what we as performers are now asked to do on our own. You know, promoting an event, different things like that. I have experience from just promoting wrestling shows. Yeah. I've worked with the greatest promoters of all time and like the independents and the down south to our ransom shows myself. And it's hang, hang, it's a lot, Greg, it's a lot different, even though the online's a big part of it now, of hanging posters, you know, <laughs> getting to groups, letting people know, you know, doing certain things just to get people in the seats, looking at groups of people who are going to buy groups of tickets. Right. You know, Who's going to be interested in what you do? Right. Who's going to be interested and reach them? I mean, I've been doing these cabaret concerts my whole career. I, I just love doing it. Whether I was doing Broadway shows, I did it. When I was doing the TV show, I did it. And I still, you know, I'm old enough to remember the day when I used to go to the printer, like to the sh printing shop, <laughs> and print out flyers and address them by hand and mail them. So that's how long I've been doing this um, and uh, um, adapting to new ways of doing things, some of which are much easier, some of which are a little harder. Is It's, it's, it's a challenge, but it's a challenge. I like, I like to meet challenges. And um, whether it's I want to sing a high note for a really long time because I think it's exciting. You know, that's a, that's a physical singing challenge for me i love those kind of challenges or a challenge of taking a student from point a to point b what a great challenge and uh who's gonna like my show how do i let them know so yeah it's 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 interesting yeah that's fantastic you know i'm i'm right there with you 1986 i get thousands of business cards printed out and it would just be a little advertising in my phone number and i'd go to parking lots and i'd put them in windshields and i did that for two years you and know, did anybody people, call you? <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I, I got a lot of people. And oh, then a okay. co lot of cold calling. That's really how I got started. Uh, then I had a guy who used to set appointments. So it's a lot different than now. So speaking of now, you know, so now is all tech. Um, what do you do with social? You went to Facebook, Insta, YouTube? What do you do? Yeah, well, I do 
Facebook. Um, I must admit, much to my daughter's chagrin, that I am a complete nincompoop when it comes to Instagram. I just don't understand it. And I have a, another student of mine who's also a fabulous publicist. And she, <laughs> I keep saying, you got to, and she's great on Instagram. I said, I need a lesson. And we went through my Instagram and there's like um, so many accounts for me on Instagram that I didn't start. And I don't know how they happened. And I don't know which one is really mine. So oh, wow. <laughs> it's like. So, so ah. that's the easiest way to get verified then. Is for yeah. sure is, is they'll do that and say these are not real, and you contact the people and get verified. That's that's the best way. If people are impersonating you, it's the easiest way to get verified because they'll say even a, you know because if you would have stayed you know active on Twitter and Instagram, you would have been verified all the time. Oh. It's, that's people do, and that's what those publicists can do sometimes as well. It just all depends because you know your audience. This is the funny thing, Greg. Her audience for her event in December could be an audience that's basically just New York based or always foot traffic and would say, this is perfect. I'm going to this, or I'm yeah. a fan of Eileen's. I'm going to this. I've seen her on Broadway. It's just, it, it's just varies of figuring out target markets for events. Yeah. And so, and then you just basically throw everything against the wall and see what sticks in that. Because exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and the, the good part is for a lot of it, because of, the internet a lot of it doesn't cost money and it used to cost a lot of money to do all that stuff so now it just requires being creative and being organized and not like me being savvy <laughs> i swear all... i'm going to get it together see, everyone to... thinks instagram's the thing and honestly instagram is the thing for a certain target market basically based on your target market is what you look at who's going to attend your event Instagram has a specific marketplace for people of a product or service versus other places where the perfect product and service is Facebook. And we have no idea what's going to happen with Twitter. So be ready. You just got to always be studying things with Elon owning Twitter. Now it's going to change the social media game. And it's going to pretty much make everyone have to step up their game because mm -hmm. I have a feeling Elon will do that. I believe it. I know it. I mean, if he's, he did it in the space industry, right? He made everyone step up their game in the space industry. I'm sure he's going to do it in social media. So people will have That's to be true. Ready. They have to be you know, ready. A lot of people don't realize it, but Elon was uh, one of the founders in PayPal. So oh, you have to realize that, you know, Twitter at some point they're talking about might have some kind of blockchain technology to it, might have some payment to it. I'm hearing that to be verified. You might have to pay 20 bucks to have the blue check mark. This is oh, lots of things going on, but, you know, it's definitely going to be cool. And that's that's Twitter Blue, which they're trying to push for now, and a monthly subscription. So he's smart in how he's going to monetize things. Okay, where Eileen, best place we can connect with you? Where where can we go? EileenGraff.com, and I am on Facebook. That that I know how to do. <laughs> all right, and you know, and all the news. Update me soon. Come back on again anytime when you have new projects to go on and all these different things and. I promise I won't ask any impersonations. I'll ask you to sing. Maybe, no, no, we'll make you sing. So, do you want to sing a quick tune for something for our fan, for your fans? Um, It's the most wonderful time of the year. Can't sing too much because then we're paying royalties. And as a family that, that uh, my husband wrote the scores to lots of TV shows. So we are firmly in favor of royalties for <laughs> i love it that was fantastic it was a great bar if it was your own you could do that but I, I can't believe it don't there you go royalties everybody makes money somehow but i appreciate it Thanks. that's right we all got to figure out where the next dime is coming from okay guys that was again the neil haley show and also celebrity interviews live from the grotto with greg Hanna. take care guys Welcome to this episode of Every Child Can Learn. I'm Neil Haley, and I'm with, I am here with 
Phil Maycomer, internationally education specialist and our host of the podcast, Every Child Can Learn. This podcast gives practical tips for teaching and learning to make a better difference in everyday education and help you make a true impact in the life of any child. Hello, Phil. You know, Phil, kids are following through the cracks every day in school, and it is a real crisis. So I have a question for you. All right. What are practical tips that we can give to classroom teachers to provide extra support for children who are delayed in early language milestones that might go unnoticed? Neil, you are spot on with saying that kids are falling through the cracks. And there are many reasons for that. But just like you asked in the question about early language milestones, students with language delays really have what I would refer to as an invisible disability that isn't very obvious to yeah. a lot of teachers. And that affects so many aspects of their learning and classroom performance. And it is really important to know that language develops from the moment a child is born. And there are language milestones that are acquired in specific time periods based on a kid's age. Now, when we're looking at a child's language in their early elementary school years, there are key skills which de determine success in the classroom. And sometimes we as educators assume that these language skills are fully developed in our students when really there may be some deficits that go unnoticed by teaching staff. And I have specialized in this area, focusing on giving practical suggestions to teachers to some of the, solve some of the biggest language problems seen in education today. What are some of the problems that arise in a classroom with children who have language issues, Phil? Well, although there are a laundry list of them, I'd like to focus in this episode on four very common problems that are important problems. And they are related to oftentimes kids being language deprived or language delayed. And basically what that means is that language deprived would mean that they're not coming from a very rich language environment, maybe in their community or in their home. And language delayed would be, they're just acquiring their language skills at a slower rate than typical kids their age. So the biggest thing is, Neil, we should not assume knowledge of certain language skills. And here's the four I think we should talk about in this episode. Basic concepts that are in most classroom lessons, following multiple or multi-step directions, because we give directions in the classroom all the time, answering questions, and then students asking questions. So those would really be the four that I think we should discuss. So let's go ahead and take one problem at a time and give one practical tip to teachers to help these kids so they do not fall through the cracks. So I'm ready, Phil. How about we start with following directions? Because that happens mm -hmm. multiple times, right, Neil? I mean, you've been in it. Oh, I know. I know that's definitely that's the hardest one. Keep them to follow directions. Yeah. And, you know, I have trained thousands of classroom teachers on this practical strategy. And it's really easy to implement. And it's called a direction script. Now, the word script could have a very negative connotation, especially to teachers, because we do not want to put words in their mouth. But I want to give them an outline of how they should in introduce directions. And they can put it in their own language based on their own style of teaching and how they speak. So here is an example of what one teacher did. I have a direction. This gains all students' attention and the room should now be quiet. Make sense? 
Totally makes sense. So that's step number one. I have a direction. My direction is about the materials you need for our project. Here's my direction. There are five things. Number one, you need a pencil. Number two, and so on. And then you list the five things. Typically what happens in a classroom is the opposite. Is, okay, we're gonna get out all our project materials. We need a pencil, construction paper, and they go through the list and some of the kids aren't even paying attention that a direction is being given. And the kid next to them says, what did she say? What the teacher say? What do we need to do? So that call to attention, I have a direction. And then the topic, my direction is about blank. So it's about the project materials. My direction is about how many, how many sentences need to be in your paragraph. My direction is about the math problem, the word problems, and what we're going to use to help solve those today. So this has helped countless teachers because they now feel that their student's brain is in the right place to receive the direction. Wow, so, that's, that's great. And also, isn't it kind of common sense, Neil? Yeah. Right? Like you could wrap your head around it saying, oh, okay. It's no different than if you and I hadn't talked for a while and I scheduled a call with you, for example. And I said, Neil, I'm so glad to talk to you today because I wanted to talk to you about my podcast, my next new season. I had questions about blank. And then, so it's like having a conversation. You frame everything with wading into the water. So yes. that's what I would recommend as one idea for following directions, especially for kids that have language delays, because if you deliver that in bite-sized chunks, they are not drowning in the words of the direction. Totally. All right. So far, so good so far, Phil, with the information. On oh, this. thank you. Thank you. Well, let's do another one. Let's do it. Let's now do this for when kids need to answer questions in class. It's the same principle. And this also could be done, not just for students in early elementary school. I was just training a group of high school teachers in this very strategy of these scripts. So for answering questions, we might say, and I'll give two different examples. I have a question, again, the room should get quiet. I have a question. My question is about an influencing factor that started the American Revolution. Here's my question. And then you ask the question. Now kids are ready to receive the question. They know it's about an influencing factor, right? So you gave them a coming attraction to what the question is going to be. For some kids, especially younger kids, they might need to know what kind of question it is. Now, you and I have talked about this before with the what, what questions, the who, the where, the when, right, the how. And so a teacher could also say, say it was related in elementary school to life cycle of a frog. We're recording this in the spring, right? So it is the season for frogs and tadpoles and peepers. So a teacher might say, I have a question. My question is a when question. That's about time. When are froglets born? And so now kids have an idea of, oh, okay, so this is a time period. We were just studying about the life cycle of a frog. And now kids can raise their hand and answer that question. So for following directions and when you want students to give information to you and answer questions, you could label the question, but use that weight in the water script, just like for following directions would be my recommendation. Yeah, it's so, wow, that's such, so far the information 
is simple, but yet we forget about it as teachers. Well, you know, let's not lose what you said, Neil, because the word simple, right? Like simple as you could wrap your head around it. It's doable. You could say, oh, I can try that tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. And education has become way too complicated. And you've heard me say this before. We need to get back to simplify, 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 because the things that are used most commonly that are effective are the things that are simple, right? Exactly. If it's not simple, forget about it because kids are going to get confused. They need things simplistic because it's how we as teachers have a repertoire of how we do things makes them feel comfortable and they're more willing to participate. They're more willing to answer questions. They're more willing to understand things. We have to really utilize the way we explain things in a way to, for them really to get it and say, oh, Eureka, I get this. I understand this versus, okay, we're going to spit out all this knowledge and expect them to, to spit out something when they're not even getting what we're telling them because they're not following directions. They're not able to answer questions. You never get to the next phase. Right. And Neil, you know this. We always are performing, whether they're formal or informal types of assessments, to make sure our students are learning. If kids cannot answer questions in a Q&A in class or in a collaborative discussion, it's how do you know that they're learning, right? You don't and, know. Right, exactly. And you do not have accurate data to move forward and assess and adjust your next lesson. So this will help you be a better teacher. It totally will. All right. So we've gone through two so far, right? Ready for number three. Yes. So let's discuss basic concepts. And let me explain what I mean about that. A lot of folks will view those as like preposition words, like next to, to the right of, on, over, under. Think about projects that happen in early elementary school. If teachers are giving directions, using those basic concepts, sometimes they get embedded in directions, right? Or in a series of the kids are focusing on the materials, but they're not hearing the concepts about you know where they're supposed to put things. And so having kids use gestures and having teachers say, these are our important direction words in our lesson today. We're going to put frogs on lily pads. So let's all do this gesture or on, and the teacher might have their one hand out and take their mm -hmm. other hand and put it on top of their hand, and you could hear me making that noise, on. Then we're going to have the frog go in the pond. Here is our gesture for in. Then we are going to have the lily pads go next to the edge of the water. And we're going to put this many here, but acting out gestures to ensure that all students really understand what the concepts are is extremely important, especially for those kids that may be delayed in those concepts. So target those words, make them visible in the classroom so we do not have students with invisible disabilities fall through the cracks. Right. And, and Neil, also, I just want to tag on, and you and I have talked about this in previous episodes, this really is an engagement strategy. Kids do not just want to sit there and be talked at. No. They want to be a part of a lesson and having them move and do things kinesthetically and hear it and see it and touch it. That's multi-sensory instruction. And we're hitting every learner that way. Yeah, you're hitting every learner and they're, they're, they're able to identify, uh, the teacher's able to identify who's checking for understanding. One of the biggest things that I don't know about this breed of teacher versus, you know, the younger teacher versus when I started as a teacher and when you started, you know, teaching that 
checking for understanding is sometimes missed because we're just trying to right. fill fill the void with as much curriculum as possible versus how many people are really getting it before moving on in a lesson, before even moving on in one lesson, not moving to a next lesson. How do you make sure you've reached your objectives as a teacher throughout that lesson? And you have to utilize these skills that you're teaching today. Exactly. And that is an excellent point. You know, um, also having a model of, I'll use the lily pad and frog example, the teacher is doing it at the same time the students are. So the teacher is putting her frog onto the lily pad, whether it's under the document camera or whether it's on a slide that she's dragging an image over to a lily pad, regardless of how the activity is being built, whether it's print-based, like a true cut and paste and glue kind of project, or it's on something digital like a Chromebook. Uh, so it doesn't matter the type of project. What matters is that a model is given and students understand what the spatial concepts are, right? Totally. So we have one more. Yes, right? the one more. But this information is so amazing because you're just giving practical tips for teachers, parents and administrators, which you've always talked about since we started this podcast. And now you're able to do it because you've been interviewing for a while. So, you know. You know, we have had a lot of guests, of which I really enjoy. Um, but also, being in the field for 35 years as a, an education specialist, I'm liking this format as well, Neil. So let's do our asking questions uh, problem. Let's give some tips for when kids uh, want to ask questions. Now, I don't know if you being a parent of six children or being in education for as long as you have uh, will agree with me on this, but I know that for the years that I have served, elementary school kids have a real struggle with understanding the difference between a question and a comment. Because right. a teacher will say, does anybody have any questions? And hands go up and little Scotty is called on and he's like, yeah, I like that. <laughs> and that's not the question, right? And so I do have a tip for that. And I've worked with lots of classroom teachers related to this. When students raise their hand, they don't raise their hand traditionally with all five fingers up in the air. The teacher can come up with just like a, a gesture of the way that you raise your hand. For example, one teacher said and taught with me co-teaching that a question means, if you're asking a question, that you need information. And so the students would have just their pinky up in the air, raising their hand with an eye for information, like I need information. Right. So I'm going to ask a what question, a who question, a where, when, how, why. And so that helped them know that they were going to be asking. And if they had a comment, it was their hand cupped in the letter C, raising their hand. And the teacher knew that they had a comment instead of a question. And they did lots of practice lessons on this before actually implementing it in a lesson. So it was uh, explicitly taught to the students in little practice sessions, and the kids absolutely loved it. And we had first graders understanding the difference between questions and comments, which is not very typical. No, no, definitely not typical at all. Yeah. And so I feel like right out of the gate, like the Kentucky Derby, is you're not going to get kids successfully asking questions if they don't even know the difference between a question and a comment. And that's me sharing my language background, because as I have shared with you, Neil, and many of our listeners, I am a retired speech language pathologist. So this is my wheelhouse for sure, uh, knowing about language and how the brain works, because curriculum is language. And it's important to support our classroom teachers with these uh, kinds of tips for all students. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and you're bringing, you gave us all these great practical tips and an example and all those different things. How can we educate the teaching staff on the role of speech language pathologists? Uh, what could you do? What, what could we do? 
Well, you know, I'm glad you asked that question, Neil, because I think a lot of staff in a school building do not know what the speech language specialist really does. I think that oftentimes, even including other kids, they think, oh, they pull kids out of a class and play games. Right. And oftentimes the kids will be like, take me, take me, especially oh, in early elementary school. But uh, teachers are not going to know what you do as a speech language professional if you're not visible in the school. And I truly believe that you need to, as a speech language pathologist, be in classrooms, co-teach with teachers talk with them in consultations, schedule meetings, or ask to speak at a staff meeting. Every, I mean, staff meetings happen all the time in school buildings. And oftentimes it's on what I call the blah, blah, blahs in education. Like teachers are sitting there and going, oh, do we really have to go over this one more time? Couldn't you just send an email about it or whatever? As opposed to maybe once a month, the speech language pathologist does what I just did in this episode. Here's a problem that we have with kids in general in classrooms. And here's a potential solution. And then open it up for, for uh, discussion with the staff. Staff love getting tips like this. So the more visible an SLP is in the school, the more they will be utilized for their area of expertise. Wow. Look, that's so great and such great tips. And where can people find more information on you, Phil? Where can they go? Oh, my website, of course, at uh, aboutthepact.com. That's about, A-B-O-U-T, the, T-H-E, pact, P-A-C-T.com. And you could also reach me at phil, P-H-Y-L, at aboutthepact.com. I welcome the correspondence and the connection. And you can also find out more about the teaching framework, the PACT, which all of these practical tips are aligned to uh, in my book series, Every Child Can Learn, and uh, other resources that are on my website. So thanks for that shout out, Mia. You're welcome. Okay, that was a really exciting episode of Every Child Can Learn, guys. <laughs> Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Royal Doc Allen Podcast. I'm excited to welcome to the program Royal Doc Allen Lindemann. Doc, what's going on, man? How are you? We're doing really well here, Neil, and you? Fantastic, and I cannot believe the book is out. Today, we're going to be talking about, uh, Royal Doc Allen's going to be talking about Pregnancy Your Way, now available on Amazon. Why did you write the book, Doc? Well, Neil, there are at least three reasons. The first one is we want to promote health and well-being for new moms, new dads, and new babies. Whether it's the first, fourth, or tenth time, there's something new. The second reason is we want to avoid pregnancy-related illness as much as possible. And the third reason is that we want to prevent pregnancy-related deaths. Why is the U.S. mortality rate so high? Well, it's access, access, and access, Neil, in that order. Uh, the biggest problem, and we'll dig down on the access problem. The first is money. There are people who actually can't afford to go to the doctor. And instead of going to the doctor, they're going to work, so they're not following their blood pressures or whatever else. Then there's insurance. And insurance, whether it's an HMO, whether it's managed care, it's all designed to lasso people, to corral them uh, in some kind of a state of ownership uh, to require that they go to visit a certain group of doctors. And it's usually because of some money involvement. And finally, we have dismissiveness. And that's we have a couple examples of that on NPR and ProPublica. Uh, women who've been in uh, two or three times to labor and delivery complaining of too little fetal movement. And each time they were told they couldn't, their understanding of movement wasn't accurate. Finally, when they came in as a dead baby, they were told they should have come in sooner. So these are bad examples of bad, they're good examples of bad care. 
And they are examples of dismissiveness, which is a growing problem. Does postpartum depression play a big role in maternal mortality statistics? Well, this group now, uh, in the uh, it's called behavioral health. And behavioral health is now the number one cause of maternal mortality, not to mention morbidity. So it yes, it plays a huge role in suicide, homicide, filicide, and a drug overdose. So what is your it's a, I'm drug- sorry, it's a big problem. It definitely seems like one. What is the perspective on postpartum depression? Well, I think, you know, from my perspective, and I think it's not a very commonly held uh, belief, but it's called socioeconomic. And that's a big fancy word for um, money and living circumstances. In other words, uh, there's not enough money, can't buy insurance. You have to go to work instead of uh, taking care of yourself. Um, So that until now has been relatively downplayed and uh, neglected. Why are your stories in, in the book important? Well, these stories are a nice way to convey a lesson. And because they're stories, people take them to heart. They remember them easily, and they incorporate the lessons into their lives. All right. The best place to go is worlddocallen.com and safepregnancy.com. And go to Amazon right now and purchase Pregnancy Your Way because it's available now, right? That, yes, it is, Neil. Thank you. All right. That was the World Doc Allen Podcast. Guys, take care. Welcome to the Women CEO in Reflection podcast. I'm a guest host, Courtney, and I'm co-hosting with Neil Haley. Today, we have our guest, Mary the Solutionist. Hello, Mary. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you all for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, excited to have you. So I was reading your bio and it's so amazing and I really, really can't wait to read it. And so I'm going to hype it up a little bit and read the entire thing. Um, So... Meet Mary, a.k.a. The Solutionist, a.k.a. Single Woman Joan, a.k.a. The Internet Homegirl, a multi-talented force healing from Nashville, Tennessee, renowned from her corporate and creative event creation expertise. She's a seasoned pro at helping women elevate their careers and spearheading launch and scale projects for diverse organizations. Mary's mission to empower women has fostered a strong community of advocates who champion for her cause online and offline, encouraging women to embrace their confidence in the workplace and beyond. With an uncanny knack for solving any business-related challenge, she earned the name Mary the Solutionist as a testament to her dedication and problem-solving prowess. Her impact reaches far and wide, having been featured in the National Voyager and Canvas Rebel throughout 2022. Currently, Mary shines as the founder, strategist, and visionary of Girlfriends, an influential collective of women focusing on business etiquette and conflict resolution. I just love that. Um, Not stopping there, she plays a vital role as an event designer and curator for Girlfriends events, leaving a lasting impression on the attendees. It's not done. We got more, y'all. This is great. (laughs) Mary's influence extends to the realm of podcasting, where she plays a key part in developing women-led podcasts and wine. As one of the three captivating cast members, she delves into the culture and impact of topics shaping their lives, engaging listeners with thought-provoking decisions. But her journey doesn't end there. Mary continues to share her expertise through coaching, consulting for small business owners and corporate organizations. With a heart dedicated to empowering others, Mary, the solutionist, embodies a powerful force of positive change in the business world. You go, girl. Thank you. You do do a lot. So tell us how you became Mary, the solutionist. How did that come about? Where did that start from? Uh, I think that started... Um, I've always had like friends who were 
who had an idea and I'm very good with logistics and organization and time management. So normally if somebody has a problem, I'm, I'm not all about, you know, complaining and harping on the issue. I'm one who likes to get to the bottom of it, like find a solution. And so that's just kind of how Mary the Solutionist was born, I think, just helping my friends with their different projects. And then in corporate spaces, you know, I was being that person um, that people could depend on for finding a resolution. How do you think you became that person of, oh, let's call Mary. Oh, there's a problem. We need to call Mary. Do you feel like this just started in your professional life or do you feel like it started in your personal life? I think it started in my personal life because I was a very bad people pleaser. So <laughs> it can be a good thing and a bad thing, you know. Um, lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.